0: Welcome to Mysteries, Myths, and More. I'm your narrator, Joyce Keller Walsh. My intention is to use this podcast to tell a story each month, sometimes fiction, sometimes not, that I hope you'll find interesting, engaging, and provocative. Forgotten Lives, Part 2, Lucy Frucht. If you listened to the last podcast about Carl Frucht, you may remember that I began with his obituary because it did not at all do justice to his life. I'm afraid that his wife, Lucy's obituary, is equally inadequate. The online obituary at Legacy reads, Lucy was born on July 1, 1916, and passed away on Saturday, March 3, 2007. Lucy was a resident of Conway, Massachusetts. One can calculate that she was 90 years old, but it does not mention that she was born in Odessa, survived her husband Carl by 16 years, that she was a film editor, or that she was instrumental in saving the lives of many refugees fleeing Hitler during World War II. As I mentioned in the previous podcast, I met Lucy for the second time at her and Carl's small apartment in Zurich in the 1980s. Carl's regional office of the World Society for the Protection of Animals was in Zurich, but Lucy and he also maintained A home in New York on Long Island. I can still visualize their Zurich apartment, or at least the part of it I could see from my vantage point as my husband and I sat at the table in their dining room, which was also actually part of their living room. Carl, in his early 70s, towered over Lucy, who would have been in her late 60s. They were a study in contrasts. He was tall and lean, with a high forehead and thinning gray hair, looking, at least to me, rather like dancer Fred Astaire. She was short and plump, with mostly dark hair and a squarish face, something like the TV star Mariska Haggerty of Law and Order. Sometimes it's the smallest of things that one remembers. I can't recall very much of our visit, other than Lucy dressed the table with her best tablecloth and best china. I can't even recall what was served. But what I do remember is that after lucy poured our coffee she dropped a nugget of swiss chocolate into each of our cups as she passed them to us i thought that was so epicurean and so very continental perhaps i was easily impressed but here i am still thinking about it more than 30 years later unlike her husband karl who was austrian lucy whose maiden name was lucy sabsai was ukrainian born in the city of odessa and unlike karl She was a child of privilege. Just a little bit of Odessa's history may become relevant as this story goes on. By the 1900s, Odessa had existed for more than a thousand years, initially as a minor Greek settlement. Over the centuries, Greece, then Turkey, then Russia have all claimed it for its own. The seaport city of Odessa is the third most populous city in the Ukraine, which finally established its independence in 1991, following the breakup of the Soviet Union. For film buffs, Odessa is known for the 1925 silent film The Battleship Potemkin by Sergei Eisenstein. The classic black-and-white movie begins with the crew's mutiny against their officers in 1905, which signaled the oncoming Russian Revolution. The movie famously enacts the massacre of the citizens of Odessa by Cossacks. One of the iconic images Eisenstein focuses on is a baby carriage with a baby inside, alone and unattended with its mother dead, rolling down the stone steps of the city into the relentless carnage that awaits below. The history of Odessa is a turbulent one, but by 1920, the Soviet Red Army had overpowered the Ukrainian and the anti-communist Russian White Army and secured the city. However, a year after the Russian Civil War, the Bolshevik policy of confiscation of agricultural products from the peasants with minimal compensation caused a famine in Odessa and elsewhere. And that is the background of Lucy's own family history. Most of what I've learned about Lucy's young life comes from her own video testimonies and an essay by Deirdre Boniface in a collection of exile stories called The Dispossessed, edited by Peter I. Rose. Deirdre Boniface's parents, transplants from New York, to Western Massachusetts, owned a 200-acre farm in West Whetley, near the town of Conway. It was called Morning Star Farm, and her parents made it known that it was a place where refugees might stay as, quote, paying guests, unquote, for very little money. They were hosts to many notables, including Carl Frucht, Hertha Polly, Walter Maring, and Lucy. At times, it was almost like an artist's and writer's retreat. Deirdre Boniface was a child of eight, when Lucy Frucht first came to her family farm in 1945. Although Lucy was 10 years older, throughout her life, she maintained a friendship with the younger woman. As Lucy related to dear Boniface, her mother died in childbirth in 1916. Lucy never knew anything about her, never knew what her mother looked like and never saw a photograph. A scant two years before Lucy was born, Russia entered World War I. As a consequence, it suffered great reversals, both militarily and economically. By 1917, a year after Lucy was born, Emperor Nicholas II abdicated and the Russian Empire began to collapse. That period also saw the loss of direct control by the government of the Russian Orthodox Church. This also has a bearing on our story. Soon after Lucy's birth, she and her father are no longer in Odessa. We might assume that Emanuel Sabsai left the Ukraine for Estonia around the time when the Soviet Red Army invaded. In Estonia, Emanuel Sabsai and his brothers owned a successful textile factory in Tallinn, the capital city. I've seen a photograph of the Sabsai house in Estonia. It's large and imposing, made with stone, and was obviously a place of wealth. When Lucy was five years old, her father married a young Russian woman, only 17 years older than Lucy. According to Lucy, her father saw her soon-to-be stepmother at a piano concert and fell in love. I couldn't quite hear her name as Lucy pronounced it, but it sounded like Mara. Her siblings had died in the St. Petersburg upheaval, and she left Russia for Estonia. As a professional pianist, I assumed she was not of the peasant class, a farm worker, or an unskilled laborer. She was not Jewish, but Russian Orthodox. Consequently, Lucy also became Russian Orthodox. For reasons Lucy didn't specify, Immanuel Sabsai next moved his family to Berlin. It seems to have been after World War I. But why there? Post-war Germany, the so-called Weimar Republic, was suffering from terrible food shortages and inflation, leading to an economic crisis and political turmoil. Was this a business opportunity for him? Did he speak German? He apparently sold the textile factory either right before or right after he emigrated to Germany. German was a new language Lucy had to learn as she matriculated in primary school in Berlin. Then, again for reasons unstated, her father, quote, decided she should become a Protestant. We don't know what her Russian Orthodox stepmother thought of it. I suppose, however, becoming Protestant in Berlin was more acceptable than being Russian Orthodox at that time considering Germany and Russia fought on opposite sides in World War I. Then, at eight years old, when her father had been remarried for a short three years, Lucy was sent to a Catholic boarding school in Switzerland. Here she learned a third language, French, and under the custodial care of nuns, Lucy decided to become Catholic. Again, we don't know her father's or stepmother's reaction. Two years later, at age 10, her father died of appendicitis and surgery while he was vacationing with his wife in Vichy, then a popular spa and Resort City. His ashes were buried in Estonia. According to Lucy, he left a large fortune to her and his stepmother. Lucy continued to be educated in exclusive boarding schools. When Lucy was 16, her stepmother, we'll call her Mara for expediency, took Lucy back to Estonia to meet her father's family, her uncles and cousins, while Mara visited her own distant relatives, it was on this visit that Mara told Lucy that her family was Jewish. Lucy had no idea of that whatsoever. Lucy's father never went to temple or practiced any rituals of Judaism, nor throughout her life did Lucy, or call for that matter. But after being Russian Orthodox, Protestant, and Catholic, Lucy felt for the first time a sense of belonging. She felt now she knew who she was. At the same time, Lucy also learned that her stepmother was not her biological mother, or as she put it, she wasn't my real mother, with three exclamation points. She had never known that and had always called Mara mother. Lucy remained in Estonia after Mara left and rented an apartment at the tender age of 17 or so. Her uncle Boris, who assumed legal guardianship of Lucy, was displeased with her living on her own but apparently Lucy had a certain income from her inheritance and was quite independent. After two years of living on her own, however, Lucy agreed to continue her education at the London School of Economics, too, as she put it, please my Uncle Boris. But not having a real affinity for economics, Lucy ultimately left school in the summer of 1939. She was 23. She returned to Mars' villa in Cannes, France. Was this her stepmother's inheritance from Lucy's father? money of her own? We don't know. The villa was empty at the time as her stepmother was in Spain, as Lucy told her friend, Deirdre Boniface, with her lover, Raoul. While spending her time swimming and sunning at the beach in Cannes, Lucy met a group of Jewish students who had fled from their home country of Italy. Mussolini, the previous year, had vowed to ally himself with Hitler. Soon after, quote, Mussolini's fascist government forbade Jewish children to attend public or private schools, ordered the dismissal of Jews from professorships in all universities, and banned Jews from the civil service and military, as well as the banking and insurance industries. And from then on, it only got worse. The Jewish students knew they had better leave. By that summer, Hitler had already annexed Austria and Czechoslovakia and was moving into Poland. Like others before and after them, the Italian refugees sought safety in France. Lucy and the students became good friends and spent a great deal of time together in the villa, speaking German to each other as they were bilingual and Lucy didn't know Italian. Although France had not yet been invaded, there was fear throughout the country that the Germans were coming. By September, the villa's servants had grown suspicious of the refugees because they spoke only German with Lucy one of the house staff informed the police that undesirables were at the villa. The authorities promptly came and arrested Lucy's friends and took them away. She never saw them again. But that wasn't the end of it because, shockingly, the police then arrested her. Lucy was informed that she, too, was being expelled from France because she only had an Estonian passport. Not only were anti-German and anti-Semitic feelings heightened, the French were beginning to be anti-foreigners. Lucy was given 24 hours to leave the country. Because she had no home in Estonia, she couldn't go there. Estonia was on the verge of being occupied by the Soviet Union. And because she was Jewish, she couldn't go back to Germany, even if she did have a home there. Doubtless, her friends had told her about Hitler's persecution of Jews and intellectuals. With nowhere to go, Lucy was essentially stateless. But she had to get out of France immediately or face the consequences. In hastily gathering her belongings to leave, Lucy found a visa for Portugal tucked inside her passport. She hadn't seen it before. Apparently, neither had the police. But who would have the foresight to obtain it and to put it there? Her assumption was that her stepmother's lover, Raoul, put the visa there, thinking she might need it some day. But why and how? I wondered at first who this Raoul could be. He had to be able to obtain a visa for Portugal, so it needed to be someone in authority or connected with authority. My thoughts went to Raoul Wallenberg. Wallenberg, a Swedish diplomat, is historically famous for saving many thousands of Hungarian Jews from the Nazis. Could it have been him? However, Raoul Wallenberg was only slightly older than Lucy herself by four years, an unlikely lover for Mara, who would have been about 40. And why would Lucy's Stepmother go to Spain during the last bloody throes of the Civil War there, with Francisco Franco's forces winning and his being elevated to chief of state and Spain becoming a dictatorship? Also, Spain, although officially neutral in the war, decidedly favored Hitler and the Axis. However, the British embassy in Madrid had become a nexus of British intelligence activities. So, were they really in Spain? Was Raúl actually her lover? Might Lucy's stepmother have been more complex than she ever realized? Given the possibilities, my writer's mind was gleefully composing a spiderweb of intrigue. But then I saw Lucy's recorded interview in which she names the right Raúl. It was the Marquis Raúl Pateras Pascara. Not the Swedish savior, but rather a very famous Argentine engineer who invented the helicopter and many other engines. He would have been about 49 in 1939 and had an automobile factory in Spain, a factory in France, and worked on electrical power in Portugal. Hence, he was able to obtain a visa for Lucy for Portugal. In 1939, Raul Pateras apparently had a 12-year-old son, Henry, and an 11-year-old daughter, Marie Louise, and infant, Christiane, by his wife, Harriet Duzi Pateras. I wasn't able to find her birth and death dates, but it is possible that she was not alive in the summer of 1939. Lucy indicates in her interview that Raoul and her mother were married, even though she did not say so to her friend, Deirdre Bonifaz. In any event, with the visa for Portugal, an officially neutral country, but favoring the Allies against Hitler, Lucy packed her trunk and left by train for the port city of Lisbon. Expelled from France under threat, Alone on the train to a different country, a different city where she didn't know what she would do when she got there. No family or friends to meet her. Would you have been worried? I think I would. But Lucy says she looked at it as an adventure, another one of the many she already had. In fact, she rather looked forward to it. And although she didn't know it at the moment, the ejection from France in advance of the German invasion and the passport to Portugal saved her life. As luck would have it, the day after her arrival in Lisbon, she was approached in a cafe by a doctor who had turned his clinic into an emergency rescue center for the flood of European Jews appearing every day. He offered her work, recording the histories of the refugees and assisting with visa applications. She began the next morning in the first job she'd ever had, and she found lodging with the writer editor, Suzanne Chantal. Lucy mentions that Chantel wrote a book about her, but in looking over the list of Suzanne Chantel's titles, I couldn't determine which of them it might have been, and Lucy didn't say. At first, when Lucy arrived in Lisbon, there was only a trickle of refugees. As the numbers of immigrants increased, there were increasing administrative obstacles. But Lucy, who could then speak multiple languages, French, German, English, Russian, and a smattering of Portuguese, also acted as an interpreter for the refugees. The objective was to find passage on boats out of Lisbon to any other safe country, particularly America. The first wave of refugees consisted in great measure of intellectuals, including socialists, communists, and all anti-Nazis, especially writers and artists, and especially if they were Jewish. The flood of exiles increased further after France was invaded by Germany eight months later. The Vichy government, under Chief of State Philippe Pétain, collaborated with the Nazis to identify Jews on Hitler's undesirables list for arrest and deportation to German death camps. Pétain, in October 1940, a year after Lucy was ordered out of France, passed the first of many anti-Jewish laws. The Vichy laws prohibited Jews, quote, from moving and limiting their access to public places and most professional activities, it also implemented these laws in the colonies of Vichy, North Africa. You may remember the classic 1942 movie Casablanca, directed by Michael Curtis and starring Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman. Also in late October, the Kunt Commission was established. This was a group of German army officers and Gestapo agents which visited the French concentration camps, looking over the names of all those interned and selecting the ones to be sent back to Germany under Article 19 of the Armistice, the so-called Surrender-on-Demand Agreement. The trickle of exiles to Lisbon became a flood and then a deluge. As one historian writes, The authoritarian regime of Olivier Salazar in Portugal, the lack of funds in the Portuguese treasury, The proximity of Spain in the midst of its own civil war and a tiny Jewish resident community that did not exceed a 1,000 were all negative factors for any immigrant, especially a Jewish one. In spite of this, however, in the period from 1933 to the end of World War II, a considerable number of Jews passed through Portugal as they headed for countries overseas. The majority of these passed through Lisbon in the summer of 1940, evading the Nazis and the Blitzkrieg which from April to June would result in the conquest of countries in Western Europe, In Lisbon, Lucy was inundated with requests for visas, exit papers, money, and passage on boats out of the country bound for the United States and any other country willing to receive the emigres. Their escape stories filled her days as she worked to help them leave Europe. So many of the stories were, quote, horrible and overwhelming. Estimates of how many refugees, including how many Jewish refugees, passed through Lisbon very greatly. There were many organizations working hard to help the exiles in no time to make accurate tallies. For Jews alone, the estimate ranges from 10,000 to 40,000. This estimate does not include non-Jews or any of those, Jews or not, who were able to evacuate on their own. Some refugees were turned back when they attempted to enter a third country. And we only need to think of the auto-premature film The Exodus, based on the book by Leon Joris, to understand that. Having successfully escaped Hitler and left Europe did not guarantee a happy ending in every case. But many thousands did get their happy ending, and they survived. To be a part of that effort, overwhelming at times, was soul-satisfying to Lucy. In retrospect, she declared, my life began in Lisbon. Also, she writes, quote, It was in Lisbon, after the fall of France in 1940, that I first heard from my husband-to-be, Carl, about Varian Fry. Carl was working with Varian for the American Rescue Committee, while I was working with Jewish organizations based in Lisbon. We sent each other clients, people with specific needs. Carl, working very closely with Varian in Marseille, was preparing various routes over the Pyrenees, and acted as guide over those mountains for many of the lucky ones, able to escape. Later that year, in Lisbon, she actually met the man who'd been sending refugees to her over the Pyrenees. It didn't take long to fall in love with him. However, their time together was short, and they lost each other in the final frantic exodus of February 1941. Carl, with the help of Varian Fry, left on one ship. The Portuguese freighter Maria Cristina and Lucy, sponsored by a U.S. consular officer in Lisbon, left on another Carl landed in Norfolk, Virginia, and Lucy landed in New York. Neither knew where the other was. It wasn't until nearly a year later, the last day of December, Deirdre Bonifaz recalls, that, quote, Lucy and Carly found each other in a hardware store in New York City on Broadway. Each heard the other asking for lead for melting over fire, an old New Year's Eve tradition. Those of us who have tossed lead into a fire have been entranced with the beautiful colors it produces. But Lucy and Carl's time together was again short-lived. America entered the war after the bombing of Pearl Harbor and Carl soon enlisted in the Army. He was trained in military intelligence at Fort Ritchie and ultimately returned to Europe as a member of the United States Prisoner of War Interrogation Team. He wouldn't return before the end of the war. Meanwhile, Lucy was establishing a career in New York as a film editor. She had had some training in the field, and because there was a shortage of working-age men due to the war, she was offered a position that might otherwise not have been available to a woman. The first movie Lucy worked on was also director Sidney Lumet's first movie, That Kind of Woman. Although it was great fun to be with the star, Sophia Lauren, who was always laughing and cooking, the film, Lucy says, was a stinker. There is no source I could locate which listed all the movies Lucy worked on in her career. However, in looking up film editor Lucy Sabsai, her maiden name, I found she is credited on two prominent titles. On the Bowery, a documentary film by Lionel Rogusin, and Crowded Paradise, a feature film starring well-known actor Hume Cronin. There must have been many others that she worked on as part of the editing department's. When Carl came home from the war, Lucy and he married. On their honeymoon, they went to Washington, D.C. to see Eric Severide, who'd been such a good friend to Carl. They took an apartment on West 76th Street in New York City, with Lucy continuing in her career and Carl working primarily as a technical writer. Film editing provided Lucy and Carl with an exciting social circle. Celebrities, writers, artists, movie makers of all varieties— And she, in particular, loved it. While Lucy was happy in her work, Carl was bored with his technical writing job. He felt he needed to do something more meaningful. When Carl decided to work for the World Health Organization and was dispatched to India in 1967, Lucy went with him. As Deirdre Bonifaz writes, Lucy gave up her film career because, quote, she knew it was his turn to have exciting work. They stayed in New Delhi for four years with Lucy commuting back and forth to their new home on Long Island. India, she says, was a wonderful time for both of us. Lucy's time in India seems to have been spent in great measure entertaining Carl's contacts and her own social circle, although one photograph I saw of her with two Indian children is labeled that these were the little girls she took care of. For the first year they were in New Delhi, they lived in a modest bungalow, but after that they were moved to a much larger home with a sizable staff. After leaving India, Lucy accompanied Carl to Geneva during his final year working for the WHO. With mandatory retirement at age 60, Carl was finished in Geneva, and Lucy thought she'd be returning to New York, to her home, her friends, and her career. However, Carl was offered a position in Zurich with the World Federation for the Protection of Animals, and there they stayed for the next 10 years. Lucy made work for herself as a sort of film critic, and when Carl finally retired from that position, Lucy again thought they'd be returning to New York. But after Carl retired from that organization, he wanted to return to Austria. Austria, by the 1980s, was culturally hungry for the great artists, writers, and philosophers who had fled Hitler during World War II. Carl, as it happened, had known most of them. While he wanted to live in Vienna, Lucy did not. After all, that was Carl's country, not hers. She had acceded to him and his job in New Delhi and Zurich over the past 15 or so years. She was equally determined to go back to New York. And so they parted, although visiting back and forth. She wasn't with Carl when he died in Vienna in 1991, nor with him when he was buried at the Dombling Cemetery. I'm not a cemetery person, she said. She preferred to remember him as he was. In fact, she thought he would be cremated. Lucy lived on for another 16 years after Carl's death. Her obituary states that she died at age 90 in Conway, Massachusetts, the same place where Deirdre Bonifaz lived at that time. I don't know what Lucy's final arrangements were. I asked an acquaintance who researches and writes books about cemeteries if she could find any reference in the National Directory about where Lucy might be buried. She couldn't. Not being a cemetery person, perhaps she was cremated. If so, were her ashes brought to the Doubling Cemetery or back to Estonia? Or, and this is just a guess, might they have been scattered at or near the Morning Star Farm in West Whateley, where she had so many friendships and memories? Lucy and Carl had no children, nor did Lucy have any blood relatives in the U.S. However, she does say that she and her younger half-sister remained close all their lives. Her half-sister, perhaps Raoul Pateras' daughter, Marie-Louise, lived abroad. Lucy says nothing in the interview about the rest of her stepmother's life. Of her stepfather, Raoul, who lived until 1960, she says he visited her when Lucy was working in Lisbon. He was there ostensibly as a representative of the Vichy government to the government of Portugal. However, Lucy says, he was actually a member of the resistance. Lucy's sister-in-law, Carl's younger sister, lived in San Francisco. As Lucy writes, quote, Carl's sister, Dr. Hedda Fruchtcornfeld, kornfeld and her husband John were lucky to have made their escape from Austria and then France on their own. With their infant son Henry carried in a backpack, they followed trails over the highest mountain pass, not realizing it was thanks to the markings of her brother Carl, working with Varian Fry, who made all this possible. End quote. Carl's sister died in California in 2015 at age 101, preceded by both her husband and her son. Her obituary doesn't make mention of Lucy or Carl, but I viewed some of her own video testimony in the little time I had left at the Brandeis Library that day. She spoke so warmly about her childhood relationship with her brother and how very talented Carl was with his art and writing, and that Lucy and Carl complemented each other. I hope that her grandchildren, Carl and Lucy's grandnieces and grandnephews, as well as her several great-great-grandchildren, know what a vital contribution their relatives made to so many lives during World War II. I am appreciative of the assistance of staff at Brandeis University's Archives and Special Collections Department of the Goldfarb Library and staff at Yale University's Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies. My gratitude also to Pierre Sauvage, documentary filmmaker and president of the Varian Fry Institute, for his encouragement. Special thanks to Jean Doualette for searching for Lucy's grave. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll come back for the next podcast with my interview with writer and co-founder of Authors Without Borders, Alberta Sequera. If you like this podcast, Please download and subscribe. It's free, and you'll find it on your favorite directories, such as Apple, Google, Stitcher, TuneIn, and more. To learn more about me and my books, go to JoyceWalsh.com.